G'day, my name is Mike Goldman, and welcome to On The Mic. Who is this guy sitting next to me here? You're probably looking and going, yeah, I know the face. Where have I seen him? Somewhere around. Well, he just so happens to be one of the greatest neurosurgeons on the planet. And why is he so good? Because he is the person that people turn to when there seems like there's no hope. He's the guy that they ring up and say, listen, all the other doctors have said there's nothing they can do. And this guy will fly anywhere in the world and have a crack. And not just that, he has relationships with these people he works with like no other doctor I've ever heard of before. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Dr. Charlie Teo. Thank you, Mike. Hey, uh, it's, it's such an honor and a pleasure to, uh, to finally be working with you because um, I, I did a fundraiser driving from London to Mongolia and I was looking for a charity and I hosted a lot of uh, brain cancer fundraisers for friends and family who are affected by it. And I just rang up the office. I don't know if you know this story. And I said, hey, I want to start raising some money and awareness for brain cancer. I hear it kills more kids than any other cancer, number one killer under 40. And there's so many ridiculous stats. And uh, the lady who answered the phone said, hello, is that Michael? It's Auntie Marcella. <laughs> Marcella Zamanik. Oh, Marcella and Stan used to babysit me when I was a kid. And the rest... Right. Is, is history. And uh, the reason why we're here today at Picture Sound is not just for this interview, it was because you've just shot a, um, a commercial for Foxtel, which is going to play over Christmas. Yes. And what did you do? Uh, well, it was actually very real because I mentioned that I'd just finished operating at 4.30 in the morning. I'd uh, I've been operating on a 15-year-old boy from Italy who unfortunately has brain cancer and that uh, it was a great honour to be operating on someone who came halfway around the world to have a... Uh, another shot at uh, buying a bit of time for himself and uh, yeah I was pretty exhausted uh, well I still am uh, and again I think it was indicative of the whole you know landscape of brain cancer hope uh, we take it very very seriously people will seek uh, treatments from anywhere in the world to buy time and maybe a cure. So when someone comes to see you to do just that to buy time uh, do, you, do you weigh it up and go well you know, look at look at your quality of life. You know, if I operate, I mean, there's a chance that you might make it through the operation, let alone have anything else. Like, how, how do you weigh that up? And, and how do you give someone hope when you know there is no hope? Or is there never no hope? Well, uh, the first concept, the concept of quality of life and the worthiness of surgery is something that I did struggle with initially. I don't struggle anymore. It's very simple now. I was taught a lesson by a patient. And uh, you're exactly right. When someone comes in and you feel like, you know, really, should I be doing an operation that's going to take away your arm and your leg and maybe even your speech or half your vision? I mean, is it really worthwhile? And I personally would ref project my own feelings of uh, quality of life and worthiness on the patient. And then this patient once said to me, you know, anyway, the bottom line was that by operating on her, I was going to prolong her life, definitely. She had a benign tumour, in fact. Mm. But she was already quadriplegic from the, from the tumour. And I said to her in my arrogance at the time, well, really, is it worthwhile operating because you can't even scratch your nose? Look at you, you're quadriplegic. And I am going to buy you time. In fact, I'll, I'll probably cure you of the tumour. But is it really worth it? Anyway, she got really upset with me and she said, how dare you question what quality of life is for me? Because I have 16-year-old twin daughters. Quality of life to me is to be able to uh, uh, impart my wisdom onto them uh, and I don't need to scratch my nose I don't need to walk along the beach I've already done that and uh, you know life to me will be very worthwhile if I can just talk to my girls at a time when they need me Wow! and that did make me think at that time you know it is you know how dare I project my ideas of quality of life onto someone else when they could be diametrically opposite completely different uh, so I don't do that anymore I what don't. a brave woman yeah, she was a very brave woman and she's alive today and uh, I've seen her just recently and she's enjoying life to the fullest despite the fact that she is quadriplegic still. That must um, help a lot by being a brave person like that to stand up to a doctor and say, no, hang on a minute, you know, I want some time here. I guess a lot of people when they find out they've got brain cancer or, or any sort of cancer that they might just sort of lie down and go, oh, we'll just see what happens. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. A lot of people say that I'm the courageous one, but I really believe it's the patients who are the courageous one because... <laughs> Uh, so many times, and I think this happens more often than not, people are told their tumours are inoperable or it's not worth it, and they just accept that glibly yeah. and uh, go away and die. 
but, you know, doctors should never say that. I don't think a doctor should say a tumour is inoperable. Any tumour is operable. You can take out any tumour. What they should say is that, in my opinion, your tumour is inoperable because I don't think it's worth operating on. I don't think it's, you know, your quality of life and the risk that you're taking is worthwhile, so I'm just going to call it inoperable. Uh, I think the doctor should say, listen, in my opinion, uh, the operation's too risky, you face this uh, dilemma and that dilemma, uh, but I will leave the option, I'll leave the choice up to you. It's totally up to you. You said in your opinion, do some doctors get upset when people go for a second opinion? Oh my God, yes. Are you kidding? No, I've been absolutely castigated and, and uh, uh, vilified by my colleagues for offering second opinions that differ to theirs. In fact, I had a... I had the head of one of our neurosurgical societies come and tell me I've got to stop offering second opinions that are different to the first because all I'm doing is pissing off my colleagues. And well, uh, Why would you care when you're saving someone's life? That doesn't make sense. It's an ego thing. It is an ego thing, but in fairness to uh, doctors, we do get consumed by our own uh, interests. Uh, we get consumed by our own reputations, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, risk of being sued, uh, financial gain, uh, peer review, um, evidence-based medicine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and we sometimes forget, and we can't see the wood through the trees. We forget that actually we're here for the patients, mm. uh, and we shouldn't be their their concern should be paramount, and they're the ones that should actually determine our decision making, not our own sort of interests. Uh, so unfortunately, yes. It, it How far do they go? Like, do they ever put like a an injunction on you to stop the operating or anything? Or oh my take god! Take away your take away your uh, your workspace. Or Absolutely. How far, do, how far do these other doctors go when they're trying to stop you from saving someone's life when when they think that they can't do it anymore? They will go to incredible lengths to try and destroy someone's career if they think they're rocking the boat mm-hmm. or offering opinions that uh, making them look bad. And uh, there are societies of which I'm a member that have members who basically uh, their gripe is that they've been uh, they've had vexatious complaints made about them by colleagues simply because they've uh, offered opinions that are different to the first or done surgeries that are different to other other doctors. Uh, in other words, more innovative, more effective, more successful surgeries, which makes the the more conservative doctors look bad. And uh, because they'd rather not look bad, they have to destroy the career of those what? who make. So, what do they bully you, or what? Oh, how does yeah. it work? Medical, you don't quite understand. But if you look up the de- definition of bullying, uh, there is a subset called medical bullying because yeah. it is rife in our. Really, it is absolutely rife in our profession. Right. Yeah. So you don't just stand alone on and say, "Look, I'm going to operate on this person." You book book the the theater and you just do it. Like, is there, is there sort of protocol you have to go through to get approval from other doctors or something like that to be able to do it? Well, again, for for doctors who follow the party line and don't buck the system, there's no protocol. There's rules for those who are members of the club and rules for those who aren't members of the club. So yes, I've had other doctors tell me that I can't make surgical decisions on my own. I have to run every decision by a group of people who aren't even surgeons. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh, they, they dislike me. And Is that the medical college or something it's called? No, no. It comes in from every tier. Oh, okay. It's not only colleges, but it's also... Uh, medical registration boards and it's also hospital medical advisory boards Whoa. and yeah it, 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 every tier they try and uh, get you somehow anyway I, I didn't want to get you in here and just yeah. bag all the other doctors I'm sh- you know we, we could talk about that for hours because I, I know that there was um, a parliamentary inquiry and they were talking about a royal commission for a long time um, and do you we've, think we've had two be? senate inquiries yeah. both of them have recommended that there needs to be a royal commission and that uh, medical bullying is rife in the system and and we still haven't had a royal commission. Contact your local politician and tell them they need a, uh, a royal inquiry because obviously the Senate inquiry isn't doing diddly squat. No. Um, well, let's let's focus on some uh, more exciting things, which uh, it, it's like I'm just so into at the moment. I've been watching uh, so many YouTube videos and listening to podcasts about new technology that's coming out. I mean, one, one that I, I was listening to a guy do a podcast about is uh, to stop the bleeding. Uh, there's like this gas that gets released with this um, the medical powder stuff that that's, you know, hemorrhaging is a big problem, obviously, right. when you're operating on people. But what are you excited about right now in terms of technology and saving people's lives? 
Well, there is not one surgical specialty or indeed specialty that's more dependent on technology than neurosurgery. And uh, we are really enjoying a revolution in neurosurgery and reducing morbidity, increasing uh, uh, effectiveness, improving results through technology. Uh, technology has uh, been part of our uh, profession, well, subspecialty for many, many years. But uh, in terms of imaging, for example, uh, in the olden days, well, in the olden days, when I first started neurosurgery, we would often make a decision to operate on someone based on very, very primitive imaging. No CT scan, just a plain X-ray, for example. And then CT scans came in, and now we've got MRI scans. Well. The more accurate those scans are, the less chance of causing damage, uh, the more chance of actually getting to the target uh, with sub-millimetre accuracy so you don't have to poke around looking for brain tumours, for example. And that's all about technology. The technology that I'm talking about is like a GPS system for the brain which gives you sub-millimetre accuracy. Sub-millimetre? Uh-huh. How can we give people an idea of, of what sub-millimetre actually is? Yeah, well... Without getting naked. Okay. <laughs> And we'll talk about getting naked very soon as well for a fundraiser. Uh, Yeah, so in other words, look, uh, there are many tumours that are around the skull base and the skull base has got all these cranial nerves and blood vessels and it's really only half a millimetre between taking out a tumour and causing someone to be blind or causing someone to have a stroke. It's really that fine. Uh, You wouldn't want to be drinking the night before. No, no, you don't, you don't want your surgeon to have a tremor, that's for sure. Oh, definitely. How do you get in the zone to be able to, to, to get so focused to, to cut at a, a sub-millimetre level? I mean, is there some sort of meditation you do before you go to the surgery? I mean, obviously, you've got to look at scans and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. No, how, 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 do you, how do you do your, your backstage? No, no, I have up? to sort of get in the zone, just like a, an athlete, I guess. I sit in the corner, look at the x-rays. I've looked at them the day before anyway. Uh, and all my staff know that I can't be disturbed, so no one asks me to do anything or go anywhere when I'm in that zone, Uh, and it is very important. I think you've got to be totally focused on your patient. You know, if you've had a bad day the day before or or a bad night the night before or something else is on your mind, you've got to try and totally block that out when you're uh, operating on someone's brain. Do you listen to any music or anything like that before you go in, or is that just on TV shows? No, no, no. It's been shown on uh, in the literature that, in fact, uh, music is good for surgery. It yeah, cool. uh, creates white noise. In other words, uh, the talking and all the other distractive noises in the room can be uh, dulled by white noise. And then when you're actually uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a, bit of ha- a bit of a hairy spot, uh, it actually is quite calming as well. So, What do you listen to? Uh, uh, well, I'm Metallica? A, no, I'm a Iron Maiden? A, no, I'm a bit of a nerd, actually. <laughs> I, I've always liked ABBA. And, uh, really? Yeah, Elvis Presley loves money, songs. money, money, because it's how much you charge you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of my colleagues would say that, but uh, no, no, I, I like uh, easy listening pop music and uh, sort of romantic type music. I don't like heavy metal stuff. Yeah. You don't get through the playlist with the patient beforehand, <laughs> do you? Well, funny you should say to. that. No, no, because some patients have actually heard that I listen to music and they've requested particular songs. Wow. But no, no, I don't. I play what I like. And funnily enough, sometimes they come back and they go, you know, since that operation, Charlie, I actually quite like ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> you program their brain. Yeah, exactly. What's the uh, well, average album probably goes for an hour and a half, but what's the longest operation you've done? I know you finished at 4 o'clock this morning. I did, but that was a late start. No, the longest operation I've done is 26 hours. 26? Yeah, so yeah. is that you with the actual scrubs on, looking at someone's brain, trying to fix it for 26 yeah, hours? Yeah, total concentration. How do you stay focused for that long? Total focus for 26 hours, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Well, you must I mean, have realised that you could do something and if you stayed there for 26 hours. Well, look, I know it sounds like it's hard, but it isn't really. I mean, uh, we're all good at what we do, and I've been doing neurosurgery for many, many years, and you get used to those long hours and the, and the full, sort of concentration that you need. Uh, it, the adrenaline's pumping almost the entire time, so that keeps you alert and you never get tired. Uh, you have a great support system around you. I have nurses who I don't even have to ask for instruments. They know exactly what I need and what I want. Uh, I have a great fellow who is a neurosurgeon from another country who's fully qualified, who comes and basically just helps me out and learns my technique. And they're a great asset as well. So you surround yourself with a good team. You have good music going. Uh, they feed you uh, uh, yeah, you got to eat. During, yeah, you, during the you, operation, so you eat while you're operating. While you're operating, they put lollies in your mouth or nuts or whatever, and uh, take a sip of a drink. And yeah, and surprisingly, it is actually uh, it's not what as is hard good as brain food. 
Oh, well, what I eat is not good brain, brain food. Uh, so unfortunately, I, I'm addicted to sugar. I like sort of uh, soft drinks and lollies and stuff like that. But no, good brain food is not what I eat. Is it's, it rumoured that sugar feeds cancer? Is that not true? It's true. No, it is true. But you don't uh, eat normal sugar for you think you'd be the... Actually, my dad's had cancer for seven years. You know, I told him a lie the other day. I said, I'm doing an interview with Dr. Charlie Tia. You know, he doesn't eat sugar. He's <laughs> I just said, I'm sorry for lying, but... Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I'm just trying very, to get him off it. There's a very funny story. Before I went, I'm trying to go vegan. In fact, I'm almost vegan. But before I was vegan, I was in a Kentucky Fried Chicken shop. And uh, these people looked at me when I walked in, recognized me. And the guy goes back to his wife and goes, see, I told you it's okay to eat KFC. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's okay to ride fast motorbikes. Yeah, yeah. well, he didn't say that. But uh, what, What's yeah. the bike you're riding at the moment? You still got the Aprilia RX or something? What is it? Yeah, the RSV4 limited RSV4. edition Aprilia. Uh, it's Ooh. probably the best motorbike on the road. It's just beautiful. Wow. Yeah. You had it on the track? Yeah, I've had it on the track, yeah. What'd yeah. you get it up to? Uh, I got up to 280, almost 300. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. You're a fan of the MotoGP? Do you watch a lot of the love racing? It. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And, um, and so you, you've got a big family, four kids? Four girls. Uh, coming from a Chinese background, I wanted to have a boy because it's good luck to have boys mm. uh, in Chinese superstition. And How are they with you riding motorbikes? Well, two of them are now riding bikes as well. Oh, cool. Yeah, which I'm... I'm I'm kind of in two minds about it. I love the fact that they uh, enjoy motorbike riding because it is a great uh, sort of pastime. Uh, but I hate the fact that I have to worry about them every time I'm on the road. I mean, you know, it is dangerous riding yeah. motorbikes. And I've only got a red scooter for zipping around Bondi Beach. It's not, not really that dangerous. Well, that is dangerous. Some too, of those though, hipsters, yeah. when they're drunk, though, they'll just walk straight out in front of you. They don't care. There you go. Yeah, but where do you ride? Where do I ride? Yeah. Do you go on any big long rides or is it just yeah. to and from work? No, no, no. I, uh, I mean, it's great... Uh, recreational activity as well because you know when you're when you're riding you can't think about anything else you've just got to be concentrating on staying alive i guess mm. and so you just got to ride like everyone's an idiot you do and you, most of them no no no, no. <laughs> in australia in sydney you have to ride like everyone's malicious yeah you've actually got to ride as if they're going to try and take you off the road they're a bit meaner on the road here i think than anywhere else in australia it's one of my uh it's one of my hobby horses the fact that there's so much rage and so much unhappiness and unkindness in mm. uh, sydney whereas when i grew up as a young lad you know that lackadaisical sort of aussie spirit was very uh, was very predominant and people would sort of i don't know take time talking to you mm. and show uh, courtesy and kindness it doesn't happen as and much Maybe no, they need an ad sad. campaign. Let them in and they'll just get the, the hoax thumbs up. Like you stick it out the window. It'll just bring back the wave at least. Like I let two people in on the way here and I, I thought, oh, well, why didn't they let, let yeah. me? I gave them a Acknowledge. I, why not just thank you? Yeah. Well, so you don't have to take me out to dinner. Common courtesy. Um, so your new foundation, the Charlie Tio Foundation, how's it all going? Because uh, you left the old one because they were spending too much money and decided to start this new one. How much is this costing? Is it... Is it working out better for you? No, it's going very, very well. I mean, really well. It's not only the fact that uh, many large charities spend too much money on the operations. It's the fact that we often lose sight of what we're doing, the actual cause itself. And I think every now and then you do need to uh, uh, rejig yourself and uh, make sure you do understand why you're doing it. You're doing it not because you, know, you want to employ people in a charity. You're doing it not because you want to... Uh, uh, give accolades to yourself you're doing it because there are poor people out there with brain cancer who are losing hope and they're losing hope because the stats are so bad and I think that if you can raise money and raise awareness about brain cancer it gives them hope if nothing else mm. on top of all that of course the whole idea is not only give them hope but give them treatments that we effective treatments for brain cancer mm. which we are hopefully going to do yeah, well, that's, that's all part of it. It's not just uh, giving them effective treatment of brain cancer, but uh, helping people to not lose hope. Like from my experience, being around someone who has cancer, if you have one or two people going, oh, you know, we all got to prepare ourselves, then cut that shit. You don't want people talking like that. Yeah. It's like if there is even, not even, if there's no hope, you at least act like there's hope. You stay positive to the very end. Yeah. And, and that's, that's something which I really love about your foundation where you help people um, not just the person who's suffering the brain cancer, but, but the, the family and friends uh, to get through it and how to, how, to, how to talk to someone who has brain cancer and how to talk to someone who's af affected by it directly, being yeah. a family member. But uh, something that's um, exciting as well is the, the research side of it that you're putting together. 
it's exciting to me because you're not going to give a shit what they think. You're just going to do what you, you think is going to work. <laughs> and I was reading something the other day about um, medicinal marijuana, some sort of trials that, you, that you're looking at putting yes. together. Can you tell us a bit about that? I don't know. I, I think I made a mistake before. I My whole approach to neurosurgery has been very disruptive and very sort of like uh, patient-focused and disregarding what the consensus might say, disregarding what my colleagues might say, but doing what I feel is the best thing for the patient. Well, unfortunately, I didn't adopt that attitude towards brain cancer research. Mm -hmm. I was new to it. I had uh, no sort of uh, street sense about it. And I basically depended on other people to tell me where the money should go. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes we spend money on people who have got a great uh, reputation or who um, are mainstream. But oftentimes, the people who with the best ideas and the disruptive thinking aren't the mainstream people. Mm. And they're not the ones with a great reputation or with NIH or NH and MRC funding. They're the ones who are struggling because they don't have that reputation and they, don't, and they aren't mainstream. What I'd like to do is identify those people. And I think I can because of my global sort of presence and the fact that I've got appointments on every continent. I meet those people all the time, uh, the people who have got great minds and I think will make a big difference. So, you know, it is gambling. It's gambling on people who may not necessarily have a, a great CV, mm. but who I believe may have a great idea. Uh, and, you know, I think we're going to win some and lose some, but hopefully we win more than we lose. Well, I like the fact that you don't really have, that I know of, any alignments with any big pharma companies. So they're forcing medicines down your throat that you have to use in your trials. And I've heard all sorts, of, you could probably tell me if this is true or not, or conspiracy, that it's actually quite easy to get a drug on the market if you get a few doctors to write an article and put it in a magazine that a pharmaceutical company owns. And, and then all of a sudden, it's okay to, to have it there for people to buy. Yeah. But does that help you not being aligned with any of the big pharmaceutical companies? Well, it doesn't help financially, of course. Yeah. When you're aligned with the big pharmaceutical companies, you get money for that. Mm. And, you know, money does pay for research. And, and, uh, uh, and yeah, we, we don't have that by not being aligned. But, you know, the general public have been very kind. Uh, I, think they, I think what resonates with them is the fact that uh, we need to look after our future. And what's our future? Our children. Well, why don't we try and identify the cancer that kills or the disease that kills more of our children than any other disease? Oh, it's brain cancer. Yeah. So once people know that, they kind of think, gee, if there's any cancer research I want to fund, it's brain cancer research because it's taking away our future. You wouldn't think so if you, you look at the news and the, you, know, you see the ads on TV. I mean, the, the majority of them would be um, breast cancer, I guess. Yeah, you look see at the, uh, the most publicity and promotion out there. It's a bit of a sensitive subject because I don't want people to think that breast cancer is not worthwhile funding. Mm. Uh, in fact, the stats for breast cancer are so good because it's been funded so well. Mm. But in terms of purely being objective, if you're purely objective, what cancer impacts society more than any other cancer from a socio-economic viewpoint? It's brain cancer. It's been ranked number one by every group, including the Cancer Council of New South Wales. So in terms of the impact on society, brain cancer ranks number one. Well, all I'm saying is, shouldn't the funding for brain cancer be proportional to the impact it has on society? And if, if you think that's fair, then it needs the most funding. Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, advertising campaigns, I guess, and, and public exposure, which is what you were here for to do today. Yeah. So the people who are a part of your organization, uh, are there any other doctors I mean, the research side of it? Do you use other hospitals for that? And what, what is the kind of uh, research that you are doing? Um, I mentioned the medicinal marijuana before. Is that happening? Look, unfortunately, uh, because of my personality or my profile, whatever, I don't... Uh, uh, get much support from my colleagues. In fact, as I just told you before, I get a mm. lot of uh, you know, acrimony from my colleagues and not much support. So no, there aren't any other Australian doctors apart, uh, as part of the foundation, but I'm pleased to say that eight years ago, I had a fellow a neurosurgeon from America who came to learn my technique. And he had this amazing pedigree in neurosurgery where he was, uh, uh, he did his residency at UCSF with a guy called Mitch Berger, who is one of the doyens of brain cancer research. Mm. He then went back to America to build up a practice on brain cancer alone, just brain tumors. 
and built a practice from 60 tumors a year to 600 tumors a year. It became one of the busiest uh, practices in America and indeed the world. Well, I'm really happy to say that he's come back to join me. So um, I think it's about You're starting finding... a gang. Yes, right. Awesome. I think it's Does about... Does he ride motorbikes too? No, no, no. <laughs> But uh, he's actually very, very opposite to me. But uh, I think we work very, very well. Yin and Yang. Well, he's incredibly smart. Yeah. And I'm not so smart when it comes to basic science research, but he is. Uh, And uh, he's also a computer... Well, he taught himself computer programming. That's how smart he is. So he believes that uh, we're going to find answers with big data. And I must say that the narrative he uh, tells is, is very impressive. You think about this, Mike, that... Google and Facebook know more about you than you know about yourself, essentially. Yeah. And they do that by gathering data on you mm-hmm. and then putting it all together and coming up with algorithms. They know that Mike likes this color. They know that Mike needs this machine. They know that he travels from A to B through this uh, route and they can use all that data to influence you. Okay. We don't do that. All doctors and researchers are all in these little silos and they don't communicate well with each other. Right. They do research that goes for years and and someone just across the ocean can be doing the same research that they don't even know. Oh, so there's there's, there's no communication between them. Very poor communication. So, So are you guys going to try and change that? Yeah, well, what we want to do is say to all these people, listen, we've got the tools to use your data, combine that data together to profile patients and work out algorithms. And by doing so, hopefully we can personalize treatment and we can actually find you know, little uh, abnormalities that, uh, on, on a particular patient, a particular patient's cancer that haven't been identified before by gathering all that data, getting all the people together. Did I read an article the other day about the medicinal marijuana or you're using yeah. some sort of CBD oil trials or something well, like again, that? Well, I think that's pretty indicative of our thinking. So medicinal marijuana, if you look at the research, has actually been shown to kill cancer cells in a Petri dish. Mm. In, in the lab, it can kill cancer I've met cells. people who said it's cured them of cancer. I've seen patients whose cancers have shrunk on nothing else but medicinal cannabis. Mm. So I know that in some patients it works. But here's mm. the problem. It doesn't work in everyone. Mm. So we want to make sure that it does work, who it works in, what sort of dosage is required, side effects, or the whole profile of cannabis on patients, rather than just say, you know, most doctors go, oh, it doesn't work, and, you know, it's, it's a fad and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, it might be, and it might not work, but let's prove it scientifically. Hence, uh, gathering good people together, Mike being one of them, this guy from Oklahoma, uh, to run this trial properly. Uh, so we can see if it actually does work. Um, is, is it hard to get something like that on the market? Because um, obviously uh, medicinal marijuana is illegal in Australia. I mean, even CBD oil without the THC in it that, that sends you a little bit wacky. Yeah. Um, and, and especially when your big pharma have such a massive influence over the government in Australia. Uh, like I've, I've met some guys when I was uh, in Tenerfield recently. I was hosting the Peter Allen Festival of all things. And they own acres and acres of hemp plants which they use for making all sorts of materials but the cbd oil they're not allowed to sell or the buds or anything like that so they have to throw it straight back into the ground but they said that they're having trouble because companies like monsanto are you know trying to already do deals with the government so they're only people that can sell it when it when it does become legal yeah exactly there are problems about that so we partner with blackmores uh the most reputable uh complementary alternative Uh, vitamin and uh, mineral uh, producing company in Australia, if not the world. Great. Uh, So we we wanted that sort of high level of regulation to help us use the the right stuff and get it approved by government before we start the the trial. So I'm really pleased to say that Marcus Blackmore, uh, who is also a very innovative, disruptive thinker, came on board and uh, they're the ones who are behind it. Uh, That's incredible. Good mm. on you, Marcus. Uh, my dad uh, is is on the CBD oil because he had um, chemo and radiation yeah. so many times for the last eight years, and he's a fighter. I tell you, it's like it's, he treats it like he's just got a flu or something like that. Yeah. But as soon as he he had the uh, the CBD oil, took away his chest pains within five minutes. Yeah, and. I guess it's better to take that if it's working rather than something prescribed by a doctor that's... No, no, it's not a unique story. I I know patients have been on a cocktail of medications to try and get rid of their nausea and vomiting and feeling of malaise that they have with uh, chemotherapy. I'm, I'm, I'm talking like 10, 12 medications. 
stop them all when the, once they start taking CBD. So clearly it has some beneficial effect, if for no other reason, on making you feel better and being able to tolerate chemotherapy. And that in itself is a good thing. Then, of course, by feeling good, uh, your immune system feels better. And when your immune system feels better, then, of course, you treat cancer better. You treat yourself better. Yeah, I've got a friend who owns a, uh, a company called ProGood, and that's a, a pre- and probiotic. And uh, his dad was uh, a head scientist at the CSIRO for like 20 or 30 years, and that was one of his main jobs, to come up with the best pre- and probiotic. Um, and my, my dad's been taking that for years. And I was talking to him, um, to, to the doctor, Dr. Elliman, his name is, about how the immune system is is really powered by the gut and yeah. the foods you eat, and now they're they're working with a few oncologists and uh, and giving it to cancer patients. How much do you believe that the uh, immune system is run from the gut, and and how much does that help you when you try to fight off cancer? Oh no, no, I'm a strong believer in it, and uh, in fact, I'm uh, we're starting a trial with Tom Barodi. He's one of the great pioneers of uh, altering the microbiome in the treatment of disease. Uh, so. It has, again, a great example of someone who was vilified by the medical community. He, uh, he started talking about fecal transplantation about 30 years ago and was absolutely ridiculed publicly on ABC TV by his colleagues uh, and as a result had to go into his little corner and sort of practice without the uh, support of his colleagues. Now you hear all these scientists going, oh, yes, we've, we, we've discovered the microbiome is important. Well, you fuckers. You know, Tom Barodi <laughs> came... Tom Brody came up with that 30 years ago and yeah. he's been given no credit at all. Uh, but anyway, look, the bottom line is it is very important and I think it does have a huge role in the modification of the immune system. It must be so annoying for you when you, when you see stuff like that happen. I mean, are, are we all in danger here of leaving our lives in the hands of the medical fraternity? I mean, you, you said it needs a royal commission. Is that just another example as to why they need a total overhaul? Just another example. I can't tell you the number of people that I see every day who have been told, you know, not to do this, not to do that. Oh, if you see Dr. Teo, don't expect to ever come back here again. Uh, don't see Dr. Teo, he kills more patients than he saves. The general public have been very kind because the general public basically know that the results are out there. So, mm. I mean, look, Mike, it's pretty simple. If I was killing more people than I was saving, I wouldn't be around 30 years later. Yeah, I exactly. mean, you know, you've got to be doing something right if you're going to uh, keep getting referrals from all around the world. And what are some of those success stories that you're most proud of? Too many. I'm, look, all I can say is that I'm, I'm most proud of the relationships that I build with my patients because even if they don't do well, uh, and believe me, I have my fair share of complications and I have my fair share of bad outcomes. Uh, even if they don't do well, patients are incredibly thankful for offering them hope. And, uh, you know, I've been accused of giving false hope, which I think is bullshit. I mean, there's no such thing as false hope. You either have hope or you don't. I think it's reasonable to say that some doctors make false promises mm. uh, and I don't think that's good I mean you know you've got to be absolutely honest with your patients you've got to make sure you tell them that the, the risks of this and that uh, you even tell I even go as far as say listen if I were you I would not have surgery I think the risk is too great uh, and I, I, I guess if I had to identify one patient that uh, uh, that I find most illustrative of a good outcome is this little girl in Singapore and she was seven, she was dying, she was admitted to the hospital, she only had a few days to live. Uh, her family had been all around the world trying to get an opinion about the operability or not of her tumour. Everyone, bar none, said it was inoperable. And then when I saw her, uh, her family and I saw her scans, I also thought it was inoperable. And so I said, look, you know, I think it's malignant, I think all the other doctors are right. I don't think you should have surgery. And even if you do, even if I manage to get this tumour out, I think I'm probably going to hurt your child terribly so that life is not worth living. So, And I seriously felt that. I mean, I honestly, deep down inside, did not want to operate on her. Anyway, the mother, to all her credit, was incredibly courageous. And she said, look, I want you to do it. I don't care what you're saying. I want you to do it. Anyway, I took it out. It was a benign tumour. She had a great outcome. She's cured. She can live to be an old lady. And, uh, and it, was, it was a case that I personally actually didn't want to do. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's it's, again, it's a reflection on your patient. I mean, patients are incredibly courageous to accept an operation where all of the, all of the other doctors are telling them you'd be foolish to do it. Hmm. Why, why did they think it was malignant when it was actually benign? It actually looked malignant. Yeah, no, the MRI characteristics were that of a malignant tumour. So I thought it was malignant too. It was yeah. in disguise. Well, again, it's, it's that whole question. You can't, you know, 
it's not over until the fat lady sings. You just cannot say something oh, really? is definitive until you know, until the yeah, until you try everything. Why do you have these relationships with your patients? Because I'd, I'd say most of the doctors out there would pretty much just do the basic, you know, doctor-patient relationship. You know, you have your appointment, you have your operation. Because I've heard stories about you going to patients' places for barbecues and in one case you even might have baked someone a cake. Is that true? On, yeah, the wife baked the cake, not me. <laughs> I didn't want to kill the patient. Why, why do you go that far? Oh, uh, I don't know. I think it must be just my personality, you know, because in, in defence of those doctors who don't form close relationships... They do it for a reason. Mm. And the reason being is that if you form close relationships with your patients, it becomes very, very emotionally taxing. I mean, when they do badly, it hurts you. When they die, you, you lose something yourself. And I think that a lot of doctors feel like if they develop those close relationships, their whole professional life is going to be shortened because emotionally they just won't be able to put up with it. So I do actually understand those doctors who sit behind a desk, don't look at their patients, don't, don't really get you know, friendly with them. and Because they've been hurt them. before? Is that what it is? Do you think it is? Well, not only hurt before, but our mentors teach us. My mentor told me oh. not to call my patients by their first name and do not let your patients call you by your first name. That's so cold. That's what he told me. Yeah. That's yeah. bizarre. It was one of the reasons I failed my exam, I was told. When I asked for feedback as to why I kept failing my exams, he goes, Charlie, you've just got the wrong attitude. You... Uh, you can't ride a motorbike. Neurosurgeons don't do that. You can't go clubbing every night. <laughs> neurosurgeons don't do that. You need to form a relationship and uh, and be a little bit more, you know, like conservative. And you can't keep calling your patients by their first name and letting them call you by your first name. So you, you're not only taught, uh, sorry, you not only get the feeling that you should uh, keep a barrier between you and your patients, but you're actually taught to keep a barrier between you and your patients. Okay, so you've, you've built these relationships. How do you deal with it when you've got someone on the operating table and you, you know that they're gone? I mean, do, does, it, does it ever leave you, that, that, that pain that you never go through when you, you know you, you lose them? And how do you deal with that? It never leaves you. It's terrible. I mean, I can tell you all the bad outcomes. I can tell you their names and how it happened and the, uh, the impact it has on their poor families. And, and you know, it's in my hands. I, I created that. Uh, I mean, you know, when they come and see me, uh, I, I give them hope because uh, I truly believe I can do a good job for them and, or make their lives better or extend their lives. And then what happens is exactly the opposite, where I not only don't I extend their lives, but sometimes I reduce their quality of life. And how have I done it? It's all through my hands, my doing. And, uh, yeah, you've just got to, you've got to live with that. And the way I live with it, of course, is by balancing the good with the bad. I mean... You know, I have so many great outcomes and so many thankful patients that uh, it sort of, I guess, neutralizes or compensates a little bit for the bad outcomes. I feel like it's a bit wrong you saying it's all because of you, because of your hands. I mean, these people have come to you and they've, they've got a brain tumor, brain cancer, and they, they need your help because most of the time people are saying they can't help them. Uh, and, and you've done everything you absolutely can. So why, why do you connect yourself to them know, dying but, so much like that? Well, you're always, you're always challenging yourself and you're always questioning yourself. Okay, so here's your typical example. You get a kid coming from Italy. He's got a malignant brain tumour. Uh, the neurosurgeon in Italy is a great surgeon. He's a friend of mine. He does a great job, but he leaves quite a bit of tumour behind. He offers him radiotherapy, which I know will work for a little while, but eventually the child will die. That shrinks the cancer, right? Yeah, shrinks the cancer. There is good evidence to show that the more you can get out, the longer they'll live. And there's some, uh, there's some uh, uh, cutoff mark where if you leave more than a centimetre square, cubic, a cubic centimetre of tumour, then it's going to be bad. So you need to take out that much, like 95% or more. So he comes over here, I do the surgery, and, uh, and uh, he doesn't get a good outcome. Well, he did get a good outcome, but just pretend he doesn't get a good outcome. Well, then you've got to, you've got to say to yourself, well, what made me think that I was going to any better than that surgeon in Italy? What made me think that I could take out that tumour when he couldn't? Uh, was it arrogance? Or was I trying to, you know, trying to prove something? Uh, you know, should I have listened to consensus? Should I have actually accepted the fact that he, uh, uh, he was as good a surgeon as me? Uh, so every time you get a bad outcome, you keep thinking to yourself, oh, shit, what, what drove me to do that? 
I think that the other doctors might think, oh, he's arrogant. He thinks he's better than me. But um, from from knowing you, I think it's something that comes from the heart that goes, well, you know, maybe they miss something. Maybe there's a chance. So you're always about never giving up hope. Well, you've still got hope together with the patient. So that that's what leads you to go in there and, and try and have another go yeah. when the other doctors won't. Yeah, that, that unfortunately, oh, look, I do know I'm a good surgeon. I do know that I have better results and bad results. I do know that I've had enough experience and uh, I've got a great enough team where I can offer things that other people can't. But at the bottom, at the end of the day, I guess what I... What a doctor has to do is make sure these made decisions based on the patient's best interests, mm. and that's how I've survived it. Now, if I if I made a decision to operate based on ego or money or something you know terrible like that, then of course it would just kill you. You just wouldn't be able to live with yourself. But every time I see a patient, I think to myself, if that was my child, if that was my wife, if that was my mum, how would I treat that patient? And uh, would I make the same decision? I've done that with every patient, and that's how I've survived. All right. Well, you've saved a hell of a lot of people. I'm sure you're going to save a hell of a lot more, especially with the help of your amazing new Charlie Teo Foundation and the wonderful people who work there. So what's happening and how can we raise funds? Well, we could get naked, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, uh, I had a phone call the other day from Marty Marcella, Michael. And she had me a loudspeaker. Michael, um, it's Aunty Marcella here. Got a fundraiser happening in Sydney. Do you want to get involved? Yep. Gave me the date. Yep, that's fine. Okay, you've got to do it naked. Is that all right? I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. What? <laughs> what? What is it? Can you tell us about this? I know Lane Beachley, I think, did it with you a while ago. She's a friend of mine. and Lane is the most impressive lady in the world. Anyway, look, uh, so it's an event not, not uh, thought of by me, but by a guy called Nigel Marsh, mm-hmm. a very inspirational man who came up with an idea of, uh, of a fun day. It's not about nudity and it's not about uh, swimming. It's all about getting people out of their comfort zone uh, to raise money for good causes. And you certainly do get out of your comfort zone when you're naked in front of a thousand or more people. Uh, we do have to swim. You have to swim either 300 metres or 900 metres, but really it's not about the swimming. Uh, and you do have to get naked, but it's not about nudity. And what I mean by that is that if people feel particularly self-conscious, they just strip off before they get in the water, run into the water, and then when they get out of the water, there's even people waiting there with a sarong to cover them up. So I can't wear like a prosthetic penis or something like that. And, you know, just no one will know. Is that all right? Oh, my God, you're funny. How many times have you been doing this for? I've done it four times now, and uh, I find it challenging every time because I like taking my team with me. I thought you'd say, I like taking my clothes off. <laughs> so your, your entire team gets nude? Yes, yes. And I've Marcella's she, not doing it, is she? She did it last year, yeah. Did she? Yes. Yeah, so I she'll have to do, do it, it again. now. I have to do it. Oh, yeah, you have to. Okay. You have to. Well, look, uh, again, it's about, uh, uh, it's about getting out of your comfort zone. It's very easy to get big-headed when you're a doctor saving lives because everyone's saying how great you are and, oh, thank you, doctor, you're great, you're great. Uh, so... Uh, every now and then you need to be brought down to earth. And the two great equalizers that I know of is being naked in front of people. It's very hard to be pompous when you're naked. Uh, and the other great equalizer is karaoke because it's very hard to be pompous when you're such a bad singer. <laughs> What's uh, your go-to karaoke song? The Wonder of You. Oh, wow. Elvis Presley, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Can you give us a, a line out of it now? Yeah. Uh, when no one else can understand you. When everything I do is wrong. <laughs> Beautiful. You give me hope. <laughs> I think and that's probably another charity event. Charlie to your karaoke. <laughs> coming soon. Uh, uh, it, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, what's the date that this is on and how can March, people get involved? It's March or February 17th. Uh, and uh, it is a great event. And I encourage all people to do it with their families, with their colleagues, with their friends, with strangers. Because, you know, you think about this. It raises money for brain cancer patients. Well, brain cancer patients are completely out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. All we're asking you to do is get out of your comfort zone for a few minutes so you can feel uh, maybe a little bit of what they're going through, uh, being in a very, very bad zone in a very bad time. Uh, and by, by doing this, by being out of your comfort zone for a few minutes, you're raising uh, money, which gives them hope. So it's only a few minutes. It's not like a 10K swim or something like that. No, it's a 900-metre swim. It's, uh, it's a, you can do it in less than 15 minutes, of course. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's fun. Count me in for that. Uh, there's a couple other fundraisers that you do during the year, and uh, people want to find out about that and everything that happens at the Charlie Tio Foundation. 
It's uh, you and the website. Am I getting this right? Charlie Tio Foundation. dot org. dot au. dot org. dot au. Charlie Tio Foundation. dot org. dot au. Get on there, make a donation, see all of the events that are coming up. Uh, I guess pe- if people want to put together their own local events as well, they can uh, get in contact with Marcella sure. and the gang in the office and, and get involved. Yeah, thank you, Mike. You yeah. must be tired now. I should let you get go home and get some rest. You, no, I'm pretty up, good. up till four o'clock in the morning operating. You got to operate today? Uh, no, no. Thankfully, I don't have to operate today. But, uh, you know, I get by with a few hours sleep. I'm, I'm pretty good. How much, really? Is it, is it sleep? You're a brain surgeon. Well, no, you, in the you, olden days, I used to need six hours sleep. But these days, I just, you know, three or four hours sleep is good enough, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Three yeah. or four hours sleep? Yeah, I only had uh, three hours or two and a half hours sleep this morning. Don't you get tired? Do no, you have no, some no, fitness I'm regime a, no, or anything I'm, like that? Uh, I'm stimulated by life itself. You know, I just love life. And I love my job. I love the people around me, my support system. I love my girls. Uh, I'm just uh, yeah, very, very fortunate to have a great life. Are you fit? Do you do a bit of training yeah. or anything? No, I'm very fit. I paddle in the mornings, kayak on Sydney Harbour. I, uh, I lost my licence for speeding. And, uh, on the bike? On the bike, Because you yeah. don't have a car, do you? No, no. I lost my licence, so it got me used to walking to work. I've got my licence back now, but I got used to walking to work, so I do that. Do a few push-ups and sit-ups every morning and, yeah, keep very... Is fit. that your daily ritual? Do you, like, meditate or anything like that, calm the brain? I sit on the toilet, and uh, when I uh, do twosies on the toilet, I spend about... 15 minutes sort of just uh that's my meditation do you read or yeah i read you're pushing it out slowly you get it done and then meditate no or? i read uh rubbish magazines uh, yeah <laughs> so what do you yeah. read you know n- no idea no idea and, <laughs> right <laughs> so i read rubbish magazines that get, again it takes your mind off everything you can read all the latest gossip and stuff and i, I don't know it's my idea of meditation no one disturbs me again close the door and uh yeah well, we got uh, the arse end of this interview, didn't we? <laughs> okay, so you like saving lives, you like motorbikes, love your family, uh, you love lollies, and you love swimming in the nude, ah. and you love music. I do. Do you play any musical instruments? Uh, well, I actually play the bagpipes. Oh, yeah. well, it just so happens I've got some just here. <laughs> look at these amazing things. How do you think you can go with them? Oh, my God. Uh, look, uh, I can play them, but I don't. I didn't say I can play them well. Oh, okay. Well, hey, hey, prove it. Let's see what you can do. Uh, okay. He can cut out a brain tumor, and he can probably cause one with one of these. When I play these, these I, I'm often told not to give up my day job. Oh, a bit of a warming up. This is this is the uh, the pump up mode. Oh yeah. Hang on. Mike. Whoa. That's amazing. Can I have a go? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. I've, I've never, I've never actually had a go at the back. Word morning, that very difficult. What do, so what do I do here? Okay, so put that down. That goes in your mouth. Left. This hand goes down here to play the tune. And I got to pump up the back. Yeah. Oh, hello. That, that stays down there. Oh. No, no. This hand goes. Oh, down. this is the, yeah, the flute. That's, that's the flute hand. Yeah, that's it. Okay, yeah. good. Now blow them up. The whole idea is to blow your arm out. So you constant pressure with your arm. Really loud, really loud now. Hard, 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 hard. I'm just slobbering all over and I don't want to break. <laughs> you got a little bit, a little bit more than we we bargained for on this show today. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Nudity, bowel movements. Yeah, we've discussed it all. But more importantly, we've got some amazing stories. We've got to hear about the incredible work that you do, saving lives. And and it's a bright future for, for people out there who uh, who need your help. 
I want it to be a bright future. You know, brain cancer is such that we can't offer people cures at the moment once they have cancer. But, you know, I'm hoping that within certainly my lifetime, we can offer people not only effective treatments, but eventually a cure for brain cancer. I don't, I don't think it's too far away, Mike. What, what makes you so confident it's not too far away? Is there a, a certain direction it's heading in the research or because, because the technology is oh, getting okay. so good so quick? Okay, this is what I used to say. I used to say that once we mapped the human genome, we knew what was normal. And by knowing what was normal, then, of course, we got to identify the abnormal genes in things like brain cancer. Uh, Mike, my new partner from Oklahoma, has told me that that's a little bit sort of uh, the wrong avenue, the wrong path to go down, because there are so many different genes in brain cancer. It is a very heterogeneous cancer where you're not going to identify one abnormality and treat that one abnormality and treat the cancer. It's just not going to happen. But with his approach, i.e. this very disruptive approach to data and, you know, getting minds like his mind, he's got a great mind, he's a genius. And if we can get more people like Mike Chagru uh, as part of the CTF, Charlie Teo Foundation, fund people like him, I'm telling you, I think we are going to find... And linking up all the the different surgeons all over the world. Linking up all the different research centres. So we don't... That's a big job. How are you going to do that? We're going to offer them tools that no one else has offered them. Uh, and Mike's already on a computer onto network it. or something like that. Is that what you mean? It's more than that. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's gathering all the data from metabolomics and proteomics and genomics and mm. DICOM images of uh, people's brain and fMRI and all this sort of stuff and their clinical data, putting it all in the computer and saying, listen, if you give us your data, if you give us what you're what you're working on in in Sweden we can actually put it into this big bank and come out with some personalized treatments for your patients. You show us yours, I'll show you mine, much like your swimming fundraiser. Yeah, right, but I won't be wearing a prosthetic penis. No, I I might be either. I'll do it it properly. Good, and so you should. You'll you'll be surprised because uh, when you do it, uh, you always think, oh, everyone's going to be looking at me. You don't look at anyone. Oh, not even with peripheral vision. No, no, I think no, people no. do the thing with their eyes. They're like, hey, how are you? No, I not looking down. There. Yeah, I thought I'd go there and everyone would be looking and I'd be looking at girls and things like that. Absolutely not. You're so consumed by getting in that water and getting out quickly that you don't look at anyone else, I'm telling you. I believe you. Yeah. And that's fine. I will be there. More details, go to charlieteofoundation.org.au. Thank you, Charlie Teo, neurosurgeon. Pleasure. Thank you for being on the mic. Pleasure. And thank you for watching, listening, wherever you are. Please get onto iTunes, rate us five stars. We like that. Write a cheeky review. Thank you very much. And if you were to watch or listen to any more interviews, you can go to onthemic.com or download Acast. We just signed up to Acast, one of the biggest podcasting networks on the planet, which we're very excited about. When I say we, I mean me because I put this together. Uh, so thank you very much to the team at Acast for having us on board. And once again, thank you to Dr. Charlie Teo. Thank you, Mike.